Welcome to It's the Pictures That Got Small, a movie club for the stuck at home. I'm Nate DeMeo. And I'm Karina Longworth. Every episode, we catch up on one of those movies we never found the time to see. This week, it's Faye Dunaway in 1978's Eyes of Laura Mars. We are going to play a game. We are going to raise some money for independent movie theaters. But first, we are going to catch up on what we've been watching while we shelter in place here in L.A. We're going to start here with this week's guest, screenwriter Michael Green. And I will tell you that not long ago, I clicked the guide button on my TV. And on the two lines that it shows, like HBO 1 and HBO 2 or whatever, everything, literally, was a Michael Green movie. Logan, Blade Runner 2049, Alien Covenant, Murder on the Orient Express. Dude writes a lot of movies. Let's see what he's been watching. We've had a lot of discoveries as the weeks have gone on. The most recent one that's been really delightful is watching old Disney short cartoons, like the classic Donald Ducks, Mickey Mouse, Goofy, Chip and Dale from the 30s, 40s, the sweet spot of late 40s, early 50s. Even found one uh, the other day that was the first one where they went to CinemaScope and they had a self-referential joke about how they had more space on the screen in it. And they're these delightfully sweet, still hold up, kind of laugh your guts out uh, cartoons. And my kids are just discovering them now, so it's really fun to watch together. They laugh out loud. It's funny, they come with a warning on Disney Plus may contain some racially, uh, I don't know, dated right. uh, representations, but they seem to have filtered those out because. You know, every once in a while you're like, oh, whatever happened to that cartoon? And it's not on there. And then you go and look online. It's on YouTube. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's why. And this one, Donald's really horny. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, they're still so charming and fresh. And the timing is great. I feel like I haven't actually seen a lot of those shorts, you know, but I watched so many um, Warner Brothers shorts. Is ultimately like Donald Duck and Porky Pig kind of the same <laughs> character? Like early Porky Pig shorts, a lot of the humor comes directly from his speech impediment. And is there a lot of speech impediment-based uh, Donald Duck humor? No, not so much. People seem to understand him. It's more about how he's irascible and wants what he wants. But he's usually weirdly right. Like, your sympathies change. Like, a lot of times Chip and Dale are really being assholes. <laughs> and Donald just, like, wants his popcorn. Like, Donald's curling up with a book and a bowl of popcorn at the end of the day, and they steal it. And he was just like, it's my <laughs> fucking popcorn. This week, my film viewing was entirely random. It was just open up a streaming service, dick around for a little bit, see something that seems like, oh, I've heard that's good, and click on it, but it totally worked out. I watched the 1966 um, Richard Burton Spy Who Came In From The Cold, and it is, oh, wow. it's really bleak, and it is really wonderful, and no one plays, you know, kind of a, a hard-nosed drunk like Richard Burton for various reasons, and it really, really worked for me and strongly recommended. I feel like it actually leapt to the top of my favorite John le Carré adaptations. Um, and there's just something so kind of alive about having a Cold War movie at the height of the Cold War. I really, you know, like Failsafe or something like that. It just really uh, did it for me. Um, and then the other one that really got me, which is, you know, this movie I've only vaguely aware of, but also vaguely aware that it's supposed to be great, um, is Journey to Italy. Oh, yeah. I've never even heard of it. Yeah, that's one of my favorite films, oh, actually. Really? Um <gasps> I've watched it for the first time as an undergraduate in this class about um, filmmakers and cities. Uh-huh. It was one of the first 
sort of not like most well-known foreign films that I discovered and, you know, really connected with me. And then, you know, every 10 years or so I watch it again and I'm like blown away again. It's really something, Michael. So it, this is, it's 1955. I'm blown away by how many times you guys reference movies I've never even heard of. <laughs> and so it's 1955. Roberto Rossellini, and it is, uh, it's Ingrid Bergman. Uh, I just forget, you know, because her screen roles are so iconic. So then when, when suddenly she pops up in, in something I haven't seen, I just forget what she is capable of doing on screen. She's it's like a Dead Sea scroll of her performances. Yeah, there's just something so, uh, she's so magnetic. Um, so it's Ingrid Bergman and George uh, Sanders are Brits who travel to Italy as the title would suggest, um, and their marriage is dissolving as they are attempting to sell this property that they've inherited um, outside of Naples. It's a lovely, you know, psychological portrait of marriage kind of movie, um, but even as just mid-century uh, travelogue, it's really spare and wonderful and beautiful. I totally recommend both of those. So I really didn't watch very many movies this week. Um, I don't know why. I think we just you know, kind of gravitated more towards TV and kind of like, you know, turning your brain off viewing. Sure. And then I was really tired a couple nights. But the only movie that I've watched since the last time we recorded, besides for the movie we're going to talk about on the show today, is um, something from the section on the Criterion app where, you know, they show you the movies that are about to disappear, that are going to expire at the end of the month. And what I did around the middle of last week, Nate and I and my husband Ryan had been talking about um, this app that Ryan and I had been using called Random to, you know, select a random film I'm fascinated film every night. By, this, by this app you have. <laughs> like, it's just the, the organized chaos of your marriage just sounds so appealing. <laughs> so then Nate discovered this other random app called Spin the Wheel, which um, is good to know about because we are also obsessed with this horrible game show called Spin <laughs> the Wheel. And so then I was like, okay, I'm going to make a separate like app list on spin the wheel just for movies that are expiring from the criterion channel <laughs> on may 1st that i want to watch yeah. and so i i made one of those but then for whatever reason like we only spun the wheel twice this week and then one of the movies i started watching by myself and fell asleep in the middle of it and so i don't want to tell you which one that was but the one that we did end up watching is called pressure point oh what's that and it's it's produced by Stanley Kramer. I just looked up the name of the director, who is a guy I'd never heard before. His name is Hubert Cornfield. That's a made-up name. <laughs> this film is from 1962, and it stars Sidney Poitier as a criminal psychologist. Love it. And Bobby Darren mm -hmm. as a racist who is put into prison for three months for sedition during World War II because he becomes a Nazi, like a Nazi in Georgia, basically. Huh. And Sidney Poitier is the doctor assigned to his case. And then around that is this framing story that takes place 20 years later when Peter Falk is like another doctor at the same place that Sidney Poitier is the now the head of psychiatry at. Peter Falk is like... I have this, you know, this patient who's a black kid and he hates me. He just hates me so much because I'm white. Like, take me off this case. And Sidney Poitier is like, let me tell you a story about when I was hated by my patient because of the color of my skin. And huh. so Peter Falk is only in basically two scenes, but he's riveting. In a lot of ways, it's kind of a standard issue 
early 60s, you know, liberal Hollywood sort of, you know, problem picture. Sure. But then it also is extremely influenced by experimental theater. So, so, you know, there's this story within the story, which is about Sidney Poitier treating Bobby Darin. But then Bobby Darin is like lying on the couch talking about his childhood and stuff. And when he's doing that, it like this, the imagery is sort of surrealist stuff shot on like a black box. Yeah. And it's just super weird and and crazy to look at. And I don't think Ryan liked it very much, but he (laughs) he was like, we were talking about it with a friend of ours a couple of days later, and he, I was like, well, I would recommend it for you. And Ryan was like, yeah, I would recommend it for you. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's it, it depends on who you're talking to, I think. But I think for people who are sort of interested in, you know, that period of American cinema where this is essentially an independent film that was released by United Artists that only kind of got released in on a nationwide level because Stanley Kramer was the producer and he was powerful enough to sort of push it through the studio system but otherwise i mean it's it's kind of like filmed experimental theater i like that that movie seems like it was assembled by the randomizer itself <laughs> Karina can you set this one up so obviously the weirdest fact about this movie is that George Lucas supposedly saw it and said, I want the guy who directed that to direct The Empire Strikes Back. Yes. That should be the whole podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Irving Kirshner had been a professor of Lucas's at USC and something of a mentor, but Lucas apparently did see Laura Mars before he made the decision to ask his former professor to direct the next Star Wars. And Lucas had an avowed interest in the avant-garde, and he was also friends with Brian De Palma. So he was surely aware of the lane that Kirshner was working on in Laura Mars, and it, it didn't give him any pause before hiring the guy to make the Yoda movie. But it's not like Irving Kirshner is the auteur of Eyes of Laura Mars, which was a for-hire gig for him. He was who they got when Roman Polanski exiled himself post-rape charges and was thus unavailable. This movie exists because John Peters, the hairdresser who became a producer when Barbara Streisand sought to give her boyfriend something to do on her version of A Star is Born, was given a three-picture deal after that movie and, ever obsessed with sexualizing his girlfriend, thought the eyes of Laura Mars would be a good vehicle for Barbara. Oh, man. Peter apparently worked with John Carpenter on the script for close to two years, during which Streisand decided that the movie was too kinky for her, and Faye Dunaway won an Oscar and agreed to make this movie her follow-up for a $1 million payday. Peters, to his credit, was always trying to make movies that captured the moment he was living in, which was something that Hollywood wasn't great at. Look at how many of the lauded new Hollywood films of the 60s and 70s were period pieces. Hmm. Even just the year this movie came out, some of the other most critically acclaimed movies were Coming Home, The Deer Hunter, and Midnight Express, which were all set in the recent past and grappling with the lingering effects of past events rather than trying to understand or capitalize on the present. So maybe this was the one place where Peters' background as a hairdresser was a true asset. He understood the value of nowness. So even when The Eyes of Lara Mars ceased to be a Barbara Streisand film, Peters got Barbara to agree to record the film's love theme because he knew that having a hit pop single associated with the movie and having this sexy, fashionable film associated with Barbara would be mutually beneficial. Above all, John Peters has always been a good self-promoter. But to me, the true stars of The Eyes of Laura Mars are the costume and production design. But the general aesthetic owes much to two photographers whose images are used in the movie— 
Helmut Newton and Rebecca Blake. Rebecca Blake is still around and still doing fashion spreads and commercials. She also directed a bunch of music videos in the 80s and 90s, including three for Prince. And it's fascinating to look at her work and see a version of the imagery in Eyes of Laura Mars just without the murder. But it seems like this film ruined her chances at fine art success. She had a big gallery show a few years after the movie came out, and it was ravaged by the New York Times. And since then, it looks like she's concentrated on commercial work. By the way, if you Google artist Rebecca Blake, you will find a Facebook page for a person who does elaborate cake design. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure it's a different person. So finally, let's talk about Faye Dunaway. Um, This was the biggest role Faye Dunaway had in the five years between her Oscar win for Network and her epic turn as a cartoon monster version of Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest. And I think it's fascinating because here is one of the most stunning actresses of the era. And over the course of three films and five years, she transitions from playing a symbol of craven youth to the ultimate portrayal of washed up womanhood. And in between, you have Laura Mars, which is definitely in part about a woman who is trying to stay relevant at 37 in an industry which revolves around 17-year-olds. And Dunaway was going through similar struggles of her own at the time. She was considered to be 40 pounds overweight when she was offered the part, and she struggled to lose the weight to the point that one source said that in order to make sure she fit into one designer costume, quote, They locked her up for the last few weeks to lose the weight. (laughs) The morning after she won her Oscar in 1977, Dunaway's future husband, photographer Terry O'Neill, took an instantly iconic image of the actress at 6 a.m. at the desolate Beverly Hills Hotel pool, looking glamorously pensive in last night's heels, surrounded by the morning papers and her Oscar. Though the photograph itself was staged, it's maybe the most truthful image of a Best Actress Oscar winner the morning after that I've ever seen, because it shows that the statuette is a barnacle, and that even a lateral move after winning an Oscar is like trudging through waist-high snow. It's a struggle to go anywhere at all, and in a lot of cases, there is nowhere to go. All of that said, I really like this movie! I did too. I think we should start with gut takes. I, I had mixed feelings. I enjoyed the hell out of it, but I don't know if I liked it. I think that's fair. I felt like it was absolutely thrilling to watch. Um, as I said, I think the production design and the costume design are fantastic. Um, and so on some level, it was just a pleasure to watch, you know, kind of on this almost guilty pleasure, you sure. know. Plain, uh, and then you know. Also, it's just you know the sort of luridness of the imagery. Um, you know, if there's a weak thing for me in it, it's that I think it's it thinks it's making kind of a deeper statement about yes. sexuality and and murder porn than it actually is. But I also think it it is actually saying a lot more about sort of the that moment in society and American culture and men and women and the commodification of this kind of stuff than. The, you know, Dario Argento films did, which yeah, this is obviously kind of in the same lineage with. For me, it had the right balance between being a film that is working on a level of fine art, high art in terms of its craft, in terms of its performances, but then also having kind of a camp element to it. I just took so much pleasure in watching Tommy Lee Jones, like barely fitting into a turtleneck, Mm -hmm. walking into a room, (laughs) you know, the movie's 30 percent turtleneck. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of thing, you know, that, you know, I kind of giggle at and and, you know, gives me kind of a 
the same kind of pleasure I'd get from watching a nighttime soap combined with what I do think are um, incredibly high-end craft made this a real winner for me on a quarantine Sunday. Oh, totally. I have an aversion to um, kitsch for kitsch sake. You know, if someone tells me, oh, you got to watch this movie from the 70s or the early 80s, like the fashion is crazy. Like, oh my God, you're never going to believe the hair. My back goes up because, you know, I want something to claim its historic time and I want it to tell me a good story. My fear with this movie was that it was going to look cool and it was going to be sort of like a goofy romp. And I tend to not necessarily connect to goofy romps of a certain period. I don't know. Like, I I really do come in with this sort of thing. Like, yeah, give me more than hairstyles. But this movie is fundamentally, like, about hairstyles and about that moment. Like, I just found it such a rich experience to be so deeply immersed in a moment that was so aggressively of the moment. And I think that you really nailed something, Creator, when you were talking about that this is a movie um, where John Peters is making a movie about nowness. When I really think about the movies of the 70s, one of the questions that I always have is, why were people so fascinated with honky-tonks? Why were people so fascinated with (laughs) the 1920s and the 1970s? And here you have, you know, these late 70s fashions, which are drawn from the 40s. You know, they're walking around these glamorous capes and Rene Abergenois is walking around in these fedoras. And and you have this real like 40s, you know, glamour stuff um, that is hitting at the exact moment while being fed through all this great stuff about, you know, 40s noir and 40s melodramas that I really like. Like this mix totally was working on me, even though like there's a lot about the movie that's that's pretty dopey. I'm sure the screenwriter, especially a screenwriter, um, you know, who often is working with supernatural elements. I'm sure that there was a lot of uh, clunking to the script that must have driven you crazy. There was a lot to the story that drove me bonkers. And about midway through, I had to let go of that and just appreciate that this was about turtlenecks and texture. Like, realized almost everything in the movie had the same texture as, like, Sully's hair in Monsters, Inc. <laughs> like, that sort of mink and fluffy, you know, bangs and just everything they're surrounded with is all sort of teased out and blow-dried with an inch of its life. And so once, you know, I watched it with my wife, and once we started giggling through it, we had a blast. Yeah. And I realized, like, I did come into this movie with some expectations that were probably not fair or helpful. Well, for two reasons. One, it had been referenced in a right, the first network television writer's room I was ever in by one of, like, the aging boomer writers all the time because he was determined to write an episode of our show that was an Eyes of Laura Mars episode. Huh. And when he found out that I, like, 25 years as junior, had never seen it, because I think I was like five when this came out. He was just mortified. And, I, and so I thought it was this big, important movie <laughs> when I realized like he just wanted to retell something that had a bit of sex in it. Uh, the second thing, which I realized about 10 minutes in, that there was an element of cheating because I had read the Mad Magazine parody of this <laughs> when I was a kid. And I had no idea. It was like in the, you know, the deep, deep recesses of the hard drive. What I found fascinating, just from looking at it, you know, on a story level, is what you could get away with in a story at the time that today you would just, as a screenwriter, have bludgeoned out of you, or you know, well-intentioned people would give you very polite notes saying perhaps you shouldn't do these things that make the movie silly when it could be. Uh, which ones? Oh, oh goodness, <laughs> this just got longer. Well, you have to decide, like, are the red herrings, are you supposed to believe them at any point, or are you supposed to be way ahead? Um, 
I kind of loved that the movie has her blurt out her experience right away as opposed to trying to hide it as a secret because it's so crazy. She just immediately starts telling people so you get the construction that I actually love, which is, I know there's a shark in the water and no one will listen to me. That's kind of fun. It is ultimately uh, one of my favorite genres, which is a, a genre serial killer movie. I tend to uh, not be able to sit through serial killer movies that are about real people in the real world. Uh, but if you throw any kind of genre on it, I love it, and I'm excited, and I can play along. If it's too grounded in, like, true crime, I just shut down and, like, have to leave the room or watch it behind a pillow. This is sort of weirdly like a triple genre movie. Like, she has two superpowers. The first question you'd get asked if you submitted this script today is, so what's her power again? Can she see through his eyes, or is she seeing the old murders? And which, which is, by the way, its own movie. Yeah. That's completely unexplored. And it's, it's like the only time I actually got real chills in the movie was when he brought out the old um, crime scene photos and she had reproduced them without realizing it. And I'm like, oh, that I'm, I'm really curious about that. I want to see more of that. These are classified police photographs of unsolved murders. Right. They've never been published anywhere at all. Now, what I would like you to do is compare your photograph to ours in this case, and in this case. So my question is very simple. Why am I photographed so much like yours? That's right. And it's dropped in favor of the really fun camp, strict POV uh, murder stuff. Right, and the romance kicks in at that point too. And the romance kicked in, although one wants to, th- like in the unexplored story, is, you know, did he commit those murders and she was seeing through his eyes at the time? In the In the speech that was probably cut from some draft, you know, he feels they're bound and the way they recognize each other now is because uh, she'd been seeing his murders all along. So I kind of pretended it was that instead of split personality. Yeah, I loved the fact that the world of the movie um, and Tommy Lee Jones certainly is entirely credulous about her psychic abilities. And I think that's great. I kept expecting and kind of dreading that at some point this would be about, is she actually seeing these things is she actually the murderer? What's behind these psychic visions? And I was really glad that those things were never answered and we were just sort of meant to accept it. And while I did kind of want more of the movie that is about, you know, her accidentally kind of Ouijaing these crime scene photos um, from the past, there was something that really enriched the experience of, of having the kind of unanswered weirdness of that just be kind of dropped on the table. Um, I totally responded to that. I mean, it ultimately may have been like a storytelling error, but I I think that it added to um, the things that I enjoyed about this movie. Errors are are definitely enhancements in a movie like that. When when you're that sort of untethered and you're getting a great unhinged performance from Faye Dunaway and, you know, uh, and in the last two minutes of the film, they just drop, oh, and I have a split personality. Like, if I'd gone in knowing that it was going to be that gonzo, then I probably would have appreciated the first 40 minutes more when I was sort of easing into its um, the whiff of bananas. Karina, where does this fit with you on uh, on Faye Dunaway performances? I didn't end up doing it because I thought it was too mean, but I started writing a game for <laughs> us to play about, like, her diva-ish bad behavior Which I just, you know, everything you read about her is that she's just a nightmare to be around or to work with. But I just find it such a shame because I love her on screen so much. Yeah. And I've never felt like she's given a bad performance, at least not in anything I've seen. I mean, even in Supergirl, she seems pretty good. (laughs) And 
I think that this is maybe one of my favorites because of some of the stuff I was talking about before where it's like, you know, she's an actress that certainly for the previous 10 years plus, like, could have coasted on her looks. And then, you know, by the time she's 37, 38, I mean, that's, you know, certainly was not considered young in the late 70s. Um, I think maybe more in the late 70s than 10 years earlier the culture was moving towards really sexualizing very, very, very young women. That just kind of adds a layer of depth to this performance for me. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just think it's it's super great. And I would probably put it above Bonnie and Clyde for sure. Maybe not above Chinatown or Network. She, sh- I feel like she showed up to act in this. Like she's not exactly. exactly in the same movie as everyone else is. You know, you're saying in in your in the history of the movie that she got a big payday on this, but if this doesn't feel like something she took for money, it feels like she really wanted to play this role and felt like she was inhabiting that character going through an impossible thing and realizing the supernatural is happening to her and taking it very groundedly. And it's really nice, a really nice counterpoint to everyone she's surrounded with who just feels like they showed up for a party and we're having a really good time. And, you know, What's what's the song playing when Tommy Lee Jones comes on? Is it like it's some boogie? Oh, it's uh, it's Shake Your Booty, and, and apparently it's, 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 it's literally it's, a it's Shake Your Booty song, and it's the yeah, world's it introduction like, to the to the song. It's the first yeah, time it plays. Yeah. That's incredible. He, he and he seems to be shaking his booty through the rest of the movie, and which is great. It's fun seeing like Tommy Lee Jones back in Babe fashion, you know, like filling out his turtleneck. Um, but but she seemed like she's really there to act like I read afterwards that this was her follow-up to network and that made sense to me because she didn't just kind of laugh and party her way through it I agree with you I think it's a good performance on some level too though this is one of those things where you have to you know kind of tip your hat I think to the editor Um, (laughs) and in the way that editors craft performances that most viewers don't understand because my understanding is that they didn't have a finished screenplay when they were making the movie and they were kind of like rewriting scenes constantly and (laughs) she was improvising some of her dialogue so on some level that makes it a better performance also probably the performance was constructed in the editing room to some extent. Whose eyes are better to be Laura Mar- Mars's eyes than Faye Dunaway's eyes. They do a lot of work and they do it really well. But I was really drawn to the scenes in which she is being an artist, frankly. I really bought her as an artist. I, you know, when you see her be in control of these sets. Oh, Robert, the fan will be on the left, so let's get the weight of the hair. When you see her, not merely the director of these shoots, um, but when you really see her making the choices, um, she feels like a woman in control which contrasts you know, so well with when she falls out of control. I'd like her mouth more fuchsia, her eyes much more intense. I'd like her to pop. I'd like to be able to see the mouth and the eyes from a mile away. For a movie that is so sort of inherently dismissive of the art world, and I think it probably thinks it's satirizing it, but it never really feels like satire. I don't necessarily know that it takes its ideas about art particularly seriously, but at no point um, do I doubt that Faye Dunaway hmm. does and that her character does. I love the uh, stuff of her in a dark room. There's something very cinematic about a dark room, sure. which was played so hard against, because she was taking it so seriously there, against the sort of, you know, Paul Verhoeven, like, catfight on Columbus Circle photo shoot, which was clearly, was that meant to shock? Did that shock people at the time? Or was it part of the gag of, 
uh, everyone shitting on New York City as the dirtiest place in the world. I think that the Helmut Newton stuff that it is kind of you know inspired by, and the Blake stuff that it's inspired by, I think was shocking and did you know and did have um, real purchase in the culture uh, and starting to have purchase in the art world, as Karina was explaining. Um, and I found that scene uh, genuinely electric, like you know to have to have that thing going down in a very real Columbus circle, a movie in which I found the direction of extras, both extraordinarily good and extraordinarily beneficial. Like this is a movie in which you feel like every chase, every scene out in the street feels like it is both taking place out in the street and that it is having impact on the life around it in a way that was really effective. It feels like such an uh, inhabited New York City and it feels like such an inhabited New York movie. It was definitely different uh, angle on New York than I've seen from p- p- movies at the time. Um, I love the loft porn of it. The plushness of the rugs <laughs> in her apartment. Her apartment <laughs> again, is fantastic. Again, it goes back to the texture. More mink, mink texture everywhere. Not only is this obviously very young Tommy Lee Jones, the only role that I can remember him in before this is in Love Story. And, and I think he's in a couple kind of like exploitation flicks before this, but this is first stab with Tommy Lee Jones. And it's interesting because it does sort of feel like an actor who has not, they have not quite found the character for him yet. Like, like some of it is Tommy Lee Jones is such a strange looking man. Um, and he's, <laughs> and he's a very kind of compelling type of handsome, but it is kind of hard to like, look at that dude and understand with 2020 eyes like exactly how sexy he is supposed to be because he has terrible skin. It's sort of like looking at a young Wilford Brimley. I don't know, guys. I didn't find it difficult to find him sexy at all. (laughs) No, I'm sure. Um, The monobrow really doesn't. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, when I was doing the research for this, um, you know, I also had that question of where was he in his career and, and sort of his star sign. And, you know, the thing that he was in right before this was this TV movie about Howard Hughes in which he played Howard Hughes. And apparently like, that is how he sort of became a star is, you know, it was a hit TV movie that was released less than a year after Howard Hughes died as sort of huh. this quickie kind of like, you know, TV event. And I actually, I've never seen that. Have you guys? No, I've never no. seen that. Yeah. So I kind of want to check it out now. Um, but then, you know, right after this, or not right after, but within a year or two after Laura Mars, he was in um, Coal Miner's Daughter, right. which I think is more of him sort of finding his lane. Let's talk about Kirshner. Like, I think that I can totally see uh, what George Lucas is seeing in him. He saw this movie and he said, here's someone who can do something with actors and and draw characters out. And I think that that's something, I think that's true because this is a super thin script. Like there's only a couple of moments where I found myself enjoying the script. I really enjoyed that moment where um, it's the thing that really telegraphs that Tommy Lee Jones is the killer um, when he's handing her the gun. No, I don't want that. Please. You got me so well protected that I'm practically a prisoner in my own house. I don't need it. Michelle and Lulu had police protection. I don't know how to use it. I'll show you how to use it. Just put your hand on the... That's right. Put your finger right through there. And I use the left hand to support the right hand. Push it as far away from your face as you can. Look right down the barrel. And when he comes at you, you squeeze that trigger. He'll go away. The guy will go away. Just so good. And then there's also, you know, you can tell that at some point that whoever she's going to kill is going to want to die. You know, he lays that out very nicely. It's an, 
it's it's a nice bit of dialogue. But for the most part, like over and over and over in this movie, you see these, you know, secondary and tertiary characters relating to people, whether it's the other cops to Tommy Lee Jones or whether it's the kind of second and third tier assistants on the shoots have clearly been well coached to, to find their characters. And he really does a lovely job of creating this little world that exists um, through these little glances and through these you know, little you know, uh, asides. I think that there is depth in this movie, but I think a lot of it is created by Kirshner. I think that, that he creates a world in which there's more going on than, than is there on the page. You're spending a lot of time of people walking through environments. It's, it is a lot of shoe leather. And those end up being some of the most cinematically interesting, just the mirrors in her apartment, creating a mood and just creating just a mini scene lit of a woman alone when there really isn't anything in the script there. Yeah. There isn't anything for her to naturally be playing. It, it is sort of a weird thing. I mean, you, you can't watch this movie without thinking, this is what gets you Empire Strikes Back. And But there's something to it. It's sort of like you don't watch the writer thinking, Chloe Zhao should go direct the Eternals, but then you think about it and you're like, no, no, that, there's something to it. Someone who can create realistic people that you spend time with and think about later on from nothing, then if you support that talent with, you know, it's that Marvel thing, support that talent with the greatest visual effects team in the world and the greatest uh, art designers, you know, production designers in the world, then they will be able to find a new gear that suddenly makes them do these incredibly big, cinematic, beautiful pop movies. I was very interested in reading about him and just just the idea of of the kind of, you know, the work-a-day workman director, um, you know, really kind of lunch-paling his way for, you know, multiple decades of, of TV movies and kind of B-studio pictures. What is the reputation of the TV movie at the time? You know, because we, we, we bounce in this conversation between talking about people's television movies or their B-movie performances. And B-movies, we all know what we feel about them. Some of them get discovered later as moments of genius, isn't it? But at various times, TV movies are considered schlock or considered high art. What, what, was it comparable? What, did people take them seriously? Well, I'm not a TV historian, but my impression is that this was sort of the beginning of a, like a golden age of TV movies. Um, you know, certainly... I just remember being alive in the in the 80s and and early 90s kind of you know what during this period where there were still really only three channels um <laughs> where there was more of a sense of of you know being kind of gathered around for an event and I I don't remember what year Roots is but it's either right after this or right around, around the same time yeah. yeah and so you know that's obviously a certain peak of of the mini series or TV movie I don't think that it was as looked down upon to be a director of TV movies in 1978 as it would have been, say, in 1998, you know, when um, if you were directing something for CBS, you know, Sunday night movie, that was considered probably a step down from what you could be doing. It was still probably preferable to be doing theatrical films. One of the things that I kept thinking about when I was watching this movie is it felt like a little bit of like a like a lost uh, progenitor of the erotic thriller of the 80s in so many ways. There, there's so much of about it in the setup. There's so much about it in the style. Um, but I never sort of hear it cited, really, when people are talking about um, what gives us your fatal attractions um, and your basic instincts. What I really liked about this movie is that, frankly, a lot of the problems of those movies don't really exist here. It's like, if you told me that, that 
a movie like this was made you know, in 1999, sort of as a critique <laughs> of the movies uh, <laughs> in which the woman seduces the cop and, uh, you know, and then ruins his life through his sexuality and goes crazy, et cetera. And this was, you know, this was sort of the inversion of that. Like it, it felt like uh, both prefiguring that and also would have served uh, pretty well as a critique of that. Well, uh, I thought of it in in the same sort of grocery aisle as dressed to kill or the movie that came into mind was a uh, coma when I was watching this, uh. uh, which is a much, I think more fun thriller. Whereas this is much more fun just in and of itself. And then, uh, looking it up, realized that they came out the same year and had the same cinematographer, Victor Kemper. The seventies really are wild. Um, <laughs> it's really something, you know, like I, I just recently watched the great train robbery, uh, which is one of these, you know, seventies movies that is a period piece and it has this kind of like penthouse forum like sexuality in the background. I was recently listening to um, uh, a sort of discussion about um, erotic thrillers in the 80s. And there was just this kind of like sense of like the directors and writers felt sort of unbridled because things could sort of be sexy again. But then I keep turning to these 70s and like all these movies feel so adult and so willing to go there um, in a way that is surprisingly thrilling. Have you seen um, Ray Folson's Postman Always Rings Twice? Uh, not since I was way too young. <laughs> I watched it a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I guess it's early 80s, yeah. but, um, you know, it's Definitely. It fits in with this thing that you're talking about of like movies of the 70s that are like, let's like displace whatever we're dealing with, like onto the past. But, you know, add oral sex (laughs) from a storytelling perspective, the red herrings in this thing, besides not working at all, it is a ludicrous collection of would be suspects. Well, this is one this is one of those movies where the math is really loud. Yes. Like when you're doing your story math of, okay, let's have our red herrings. It, they announce themselves like, now we're going to make you think it's this guy briefly. Then we're going to kill him. And so that the last 20 minutes of the movie, you're out of potential suspects. So your mind just starts figuring out, well, it must be Tommy Lee Jones, in which case it must be for these reasons. And in this way, oh, okay, now let's watch that play out. Then the only thing left to, to kind of enjoy on a story level is, is she going to kill him or is he going to kill himself or weirdly, this combination of both. Right, or is something going to be revealed about her powers that we don't quite know yet? That's what I was waiting for. I was waiting to find out, like, that she was, you know, a psychic who was, you know, she was one of his personalities, and she had committed those crimes in the past. That would have been good. Yeah. Uh, You know, what was the bond between them? Let's explore that a little bit. Are we going to find a picture of them from the 20s dead on the floor somewhere? Nope. Just she couldn't get enough of Tommy Lee Jones in that turtleneck. So ultimately, it's about the turtleneck. It's always about the turtleneck. <laughs> Folks, was this a good movie to be watching right now? Michael, let's start with uh, you. Uh, I, I'm enjoying anything that takes me out of time and place and makes me try to figure out what it might have been like to be in that place at that time. And for an hour and 40 odd minutes, I completely forgot all my troubles and had a ball. So absolutely, this is a movie to be watching. Yeah, I really couldn't agree more. I I was surprised how much I I truly, truly enjoyed it. Like this is, if anything about this conversation sounds compelling, even if if you merely want to go and look at some cool fashion, the movie's ridiculous and the story is ridiculous. But at every turn, I wanted to know what was going to happen next. So I totally recommend this one. 
So I really enjoyed this, um, as I've said, but I also kind of want to stand up for one reason why I think it's good that we haven't really talked about yet, which is um, you just don't see a lot of movies from er any era about a female artist. And this movie um, is kind of remarkable in the way, in the casual way that it puts a woman at its center, makes her the protagonist, makes her a creative genius, um, shows that she's naturally beautiful but doesn't overtly sexualize her in fact she's dressed like more frumpy than any woman other woman in the film and still (laughs) allows her to have like a a romance and a sexual relationship which yes does not turn out great (laughs) but while it's happening is something that she has agency in and is really enjoying and is choosing to be part of Um, And so for all of those reasons, I think it's, you know, it's not just fun to watch because like we're stuck in our houses and it's it's visually so exciting and and is, you know, has this kind of like pop kickiness to it. But it also kind of fits with, you know, this frustration that I think a lot of people have right now, which is that, you know, we have made some advances in terms of gender parity behind the scenes and then also on screen, but there still are just not a lot of big budget, big Hollywood movies that take women seriously as being intellectual beings, creative people, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that this movie is is worth watching in that lane in addition to everything else. Is it game time? I think it's game time is called Top 5 Blind Items, in which you would have to guess the top five highest grossing films of 1978 based on clues that use the language of gossip column blind items. <laughs> so we're going to start with the fifth highest grossing film of 1978 and work our way up to the number one. Okay. So number five, this remake of a comedy about death starred a permanent A-plus list actor and his A-minus list foreign-born, then ex-girlfriend. It was the third film they would star in together and was by far the highest grossing. I know what this is. This is, I can't remember, this is a remake of a movie I've never seen. And I saw this movie, I think when it came out and I was super young. I believe, uh, speaking of John Peters, I think this is Warren Beatty in... Heaven Can Wait? It's Heaven Can Wait. Correct. Wow. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, number four. This film, the first in a two-movie franchise, starred a permanent A-plus list actor-slash-director, his B-minus list common-law <laughs> wife who would later file two lawsuits against him, and a primate. Oh, the... the uh, uh, Clint Eastwood. There's a great country song with it, uh, the Clint Eastwood right turn. Yeah, so is it, it's every which way but loose. Or every which way you can. I, I, that's the second one. It's, it's the first. Yeah, it's what you said. Every, every which way, way to lose. Correct. Excellent. Two for two. This comedy starring an A-list actor who became a star on late night TV was directed by this former A-list director who, four years later, was charged with involuntary manslaughter. Oh, that's there's a lot going on in that. Late night TV. I think I know the movie, but I don't know the director's story. So I'm excited to find out. So I will say the movie to find out. I think it's Animal House. Is that your final answer? Yes. I'm, I always go with me. <laughs> yes, that it is Animal House. What's the story? I don't know the story. So John Landis uh, was directing a segment of the Twilight Zone oh, movie, and there was a helicopter crash, and uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's father was killed, as, that's right. as were two children. I forgot that he was personally sued. All right. No laughing matter. Not like Animal House. 
Number two, you guys are three for three. This musical got a sequel a few years later starring a future A-list actress with a difficult-to-spell last name, as well as an offspring of a permanent A-plus list singer-slash-actress. Okay, I am I am now locked. Yes, I am locked into 78. Take it away, Michael. I, I, it's got to be Greece. It's got to be Greece. Correct. Yes. I didn't know who was the last person. Yeah, who who's starring who, Michelle Pfeiffer, and but who else was in it? Lorna Luft, Judy Garland's daughter. I oh didn't know that. Okay, one more. The number one highest grossing film of 1978. This movie had a record-setting budget, thanks in part to the hefty salary of this former A-list method actor. Oh, 1978. Oh, okay. So this is um, the uh, it's Brando. Bum, 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 bum. It's Superman. Yeah, we're Superman. Correct. Are we the best? Can you just say that officially? On well, this is probably the best score that has ever come out of one of these games. So I'm I'm so bad at games. This is the only game I've ever like come close to. Uh, Michael, I'll let you have that one and not point out that that uh, this one happened to be one of the easier games. That does not mean it was any less satisfying. So, Michael, before we let you go, can you tell us about a beloved uh, uh, movie institution that you would uh, like to highlight? I, uh, it, to prepare for this one, I looked at all the art house cinemas that are places I remembered seeing art house movies when I was growing up, and they're all closed in uh, Westchester, New York. There are some new ones now that I just don't know. So I just thought about when I came out to L.A. for the first time and actually where I first wanted to get Eyes of Laura Mars when <laughs> I was made fun of for not having seen it was Vidiot's. Uh, the great, uh, you know, uh, video rental institution, which closed, but they, uh, according to the internet, um, I didn't know this and it seems like I'm the last one to find out. So everyone else can find out. Um, they are reopening, uh, they were intending to reopen in fall of 2020 as a nonprofit, um, with a, a lot of great services, not just, uh, being a library for anyone who wants it, but also having, uh, a theater, and I, I would recommend checking out their website and seeing what they're about. That's excellent. You're actually the second Vidiot's shouter-outer, and as a Los Angelino now, um, I'm happy to have Michael join Amy Nicholson in shouting out Vidiot's because it's really a kick-ass institution. Here's the part of the episode when we turn to you to help keep those places we miss going to so much right now alive. We have been encouraging you to contribute to the Art House America fundraiser, a campaign organized by the Criterion Collection and Janus Films and Art House Convergence. And with your help, they have raised over a half a million dollars. They are extending the fundraiser, so there's still time to donate. You can find a link in our show notes and on our website, smallpictureshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at The Memory Palace. She is at Karina Longworth on Twitter. And you should subscribe wherever you subscribe to your podcasts to both of our other shows. Mine's called The Memory Palace, and hers is called You Must Remember This. And she's about to launch a new season that I am super excited about, and you should be too. Let's find out what we'll be watching this week with our guest, Stacy Scher, producer of Pulp Fiction, Man in the Moon, Contagion, and the new series, Mrs. America. Hey, Karina and Nate. Um, I've been meaning to watch Amadeus again for years. I never watched it when I worked with Milos on Man on the Moon. I haven't seen it since it came out. So let's watch it. So look for Amadeus. Now you are going to find when you do look for it that you can only stream the director's cut. And that's the one we're going to be talking about. And 
we'll have a surprise guest who will help us sort out the difference between that version and the Oscar-winning theatrical release. Talk to you folks next week.